All right, I invite you to open your Bibles um, to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. We have God's Word uh, open on your lap in front of you. Um, if you don't have a Bible on you, um, just go up and, uh, and put up your hand, and our ushers are all helping kids make their way out the back. Um, we'll try again in a minute. Um, Genesis chapter 15 is where we're going to spend uh, our morning. Oh, here we have some usher help. Um, thank you, Melanie. This is a high point uh, in the book of Genesis, uh, a high point in the Bible. Um, this, is a, this is a significant chunk of scripture this morning. We, we come uh, to holy ground, and uh, I'm almost hesitant to speak. Um, there is so much that could be said here, um, so much more than we have time to say. Um, and so we're going to look at, at uh, the covenant that God makes with Abram. And uh, just a, um, yeah, fantastic piece of scripture. But before we go forward into that, I want us to just go backwards. I want us to kind of relay the foundation that we have come through over the past months as we've worked our way through the, the uh, beginning chapters of Genesis. Um, I want to start at the beginning. God created Adam and Eve. He created them in his image. He placed them in the, in the Garden of Eden, and, and in so doing, he gave them, um, I think it boils down nicely to three critical things, three essential things. He gave them his peace and his provision and his presence. That's where they lived. In the, in the garden um, was a place of God's peace. It, w- it was a garden. It was protected. It was safe. There was no death. There was no disease. There was no fear or trouble, no, no toil or struggle. Um, it was perfect not, not just lack of war, but wholeness and fullness. And it was a place of God's provision. It says as God placed them in the garden, he gave them uh, every tree that was pleasant to look at and, and delightful to eat. Uh, he, he, he gave them abundance to cover their, their needs, and not of their needs, but, but beauty and glory. And then most importantly, he gave them his own presence. God was with them in the garden. They walked with God in the cool of the day. They knew God. And, and, and man, we just don't grasp the significance of that. Um, think of a, of a trip that you go on by yourself versus a trip that you go on with your favorite person, your spouse or your best friend. That, that person makes all of those experiences so much better, so much fuller. Um, God is the greatest being that ever was, ever will be by an infinite margin, and to be in his presence is the highest good, is the greatest thing. Now, God also placed in the garden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one tree from which he had commanded them, you shall not eat of it with the warning, the day that you eat of it, you will surely We know the story. Uh, Enter the serpent who enticed them. They doubted God. Ultimately, they rebelled against God. They they ate the fruit that he said not to eat. They didn't trust him. And in so doing, they, they declared their independence from him, their rebellion against him, their opposition to him. Now, the Lord was gracious. He did not end them in that moment as he absolutely would have been just and righteous to do. Now, in that moment, Though death, in a sense, did enter the world, came into 
existence. They were sent out of the garden. They lost that peace that they had, that provision of God, and most significantly, they lost the presence of God. God is holy. God is just. God is righteous. He, he does not coexist with sin, with wickedness. He will not let wicked rebellion go unpunished. And yet, Genesis 3, even as God is explaining and laying out for Adam and Eve, this is the chaos and the brokenness that you brought into this world by your sin. Um, He makes this amazing statement to the serpent. Genesis 3.15, he says this, I will put enmity um, between you and the woman, between the serpent and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God made this promise, and it may not look like much at first glance, um, but there's a lot of detail there. There's a lot in there. There would be a male offspring. It says he, born of a woman, and the serpent would bruise his heel, would wound him, but he would ultimately crush the serpent's head. He would destroy the devil and the works of the devil. God would undo the curse of sin and the damage it had done. And and that that promise right there sets the trajectory for the entire rest of the Bible. You can read the entire Bible in light of this problem and this promise. Humanity is sinful. We deserve God's judgment. But God has promised to restore. He's promised uh, a future day when he will return humanity to a better than Garden of Eden-like state. Now, humanity continued from there. Um, We inherited from our father, Adam, this hard, rebellious heart toward God. Eventually, uh, it gets to the point where Genesis 6-5 says this, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Um, That is, in a word, damning. That's it. It's wickedness. It's, it's, it's corruption through everyone. As the Lord brought this great flood, he wiped out sinful humanity. Every man, woman, and child. It's shocking, and it should be, um, but it's justice. Every human being except Noah and his family. Because God still had a promise to keep. God still had a plan that he's working out. And Noah, um, God said to Noah, um, humanity will continue to be wicked. That hasn't changed. They will continue in rebellion, but, but I'm going to keep my promise. And he told Noah that, that he would never again judge the earth by a flood. And he sealed that promise with the rainbow. The rainbow is God's sign that, that his judgment though we fully deserve it for our sin, is waiting. It's held off. Waiting for the the fulfillment of God's rescue plan. A plan to send this this offspring who would would somehow rescue humanity. Many years had passed since Noah. Humanity had again all but forgotten God. and, And then something remarkable happens. God calls Abram. Abram is an idol worshiper in the pagan city of Ur. Um, The Lord said to Abram, follow me. Come after me. God said, "I I will give you a land, and I will make you a great nation, 
and I will bless you so that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So God is getting specific. There's this big overarching promise, and now God is kind of narrowing down. This is how it's going to happen. It's going to, it's going to come through this man. It's going to happen this way. And yet, years would pass, decades would pass. Abram had followed the Lord, he had trusted the Lord, he did the things that God said to do, and yet, not only does he not have a land, but he does not have a great nation, and he doesn't even have a single child. His wife is barren, and he's getting old. And so Abram is looking at God's promise, and he's looking at his barren wife, and he's looking at his increasing age, and this country that he's supposed to possess but is, but is overrun by other wicked nations, and, and he's struggling. He's wrestling with this. God, what is going on? That's where Genesis 15 picks up, this grand and mysterious promise of God um, to fix the problem of sin, to, to restore humanity to himself. So have a look with me now. Genesis 15, we're going to look at the whole chapter Um, And uh, so let me read it for us, and and then we'll break it down. Starting in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For uh, I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, You have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these things cut them in half, and laid each half over and against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away, and the sun was going down. A deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your forefathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on the day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, 
the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Would you pray with me? Father, we stand in awe this morning of your grace. Your great and wonderful promises to us that you have been working out since time began. Lord, help us this morning to see your word, to see it clearly, to understand the truth that you have embedded here. Father, soften our hearts. Open our eyes that we may see your truth, that we may bend our will to yours, that we may be humbled before you. God, encourage us. Refresh us with the wonder of your grace this morning. Help us to see it fresh and new and clear. Lord, I pray that you would be at work through me. Um, Lord, as I speak, that if there's anything that I say that is not true to your word, that those words would fall to the ground and be forgotten. But God, that your word would go forth. Lord, that you would, as you promise, um, continue to build your church, that your word would not return without accomplishing that which you have sent it to do. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Abram is struggling to trust the Lord in the face of all of this. Um, and the Lord responds so graciously that God even answers him. And he reveals to Abram these marvelous things about the, the nature of his promise and his plan to, to carry it out. And as he does so, he's, he's revealing these things not, not only for Abram's sake, but for Abram's children and his children's children and for us. This is for us right here as we come in the footsteps of Abram. And so we want to, we want to pay attention, we want to drill down and understand everything the Lord has for us here. The first thing that God says to, to Abram and, and secondarily to us is trust my promise. Trust my promise. That's, that's point one here looking at verses one to six. Verse one begins with the words, after these things. Um, pretty clearly a reference to the, the chapter that just preceded. Um, Abram had just made this incredible uh, stand of, of faith. The king of Sodom had offered Abram great wealth, all that he had. And Abram declined. He says, no, I don't want it. I won't take it. It's shocking. Um, Abram would not look to the wicked people of the world, to, to Sodom, uh, to make him wealthy, to be his blessing. He's waiting on the promise of God. And of course, Melchizedek is, comes with the, the blessing of the Lord. And so Abram is waiting on God. He's trusting in God for his blessing. And now, um, we don't know what the, the time frame is here. Probably, I, I think it, this, this may well be years later. It still hasn't come. The word of the Lord, though, comes to Abram. God says to him, fear not. Fear not. I am your shield. Uh, your reward shall be very great. God says, I've got you. I've got you. I'm going to protect you, and, and, and your reward is coming. You can imagine this would have been uh, a difficult place for Abram to be. It, it, it certainly must have crept into his mind. Maybe I should have taken the wealth from Sodom. It was right there. It was mine to be had. I could have been rich and wealthy and, and, and great with, with the wealth from Sodom. Maybe I missed my opportunity. He made this stand of faith, and he passed up on what looked so good. And now he's not yet received 
the blessing of God. Maybe I made the wrong decision. When Eve was in the Garden of Eden, she's looking at the, the forbidden fruit hanging on the tree. Sin makes these great promises. So it's delight to the eyes. Look good for food, desirable to make one wise. Sin made all these promises. Come, come and try some. It'll be great. I will satisfy the, the longings of your heart. Uh, I will make you great. I will delight you and, and fulfill you. The wealth of Sodom must have been tempting to Abram. It had to be. He must have wondered if he had, if he had passed up on the better option. It was the sure thing. It was right there in front of him. God's promises somewhere waiting. God says, don't be afraid. I'll protect you. I will reward you. And, and he promises a, a reward far greater than anything the world has to offer. Trust me. Follow me. Abram responds to the Lord God, I have no children. I have no children. God had promised to make him into a great nation. Of course, the, the idea of the, the offspring, the legacy of a family, that was absolutely central in his worldview. What can you give me that if, if I can't even pass it down to my children, then I have nothing. God's blessing was to run from Abram through his offspring. The promised rescuer is an offspring that we're waiting for, and I don't have any offspring. No children at all, a barren wife. And so, as it stood at this point, Eliezer, who seems to be a, a high-ranking slave in his house, he's a, a Syrian, he was the one who stood to, to inherit Abram's house and his, his wealth and everything that he had. And his family line was going to come to an end, that's it. How can there be a rescuer through my line if my line doesn't even continue? So the Lord spoke a second time, took Abram out under the stars. And you can imagine, this is a day before uh, city street lights and, and highway lights and all of that. He's looking out into a full, starry sky. And the Lord says to him, this is what your descendants will be like. So will be your offspring. I used to get kind of hung up on this. I don't know if you wrestled with this. It doesn't seem just improbable. This is absurd. Um, there's a lot of stars out there. I don't know if you've done any reading or watched YouTube videos on astronomy. Um, if we were to match people to the number of stars, I don't even think we could physically fit them on the earth, right? Um, Genesis 13, God already said, um, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. Same problem. That's too many people. Um, just funny the things that you read and assume, and as you read it more carefully, uh, it makes sense. Actually, the Lord says the, to Abram, number the stars if you're able to number them. Implication, you can't. You won't be able to. You can't count them. And then he says, not your offspring will be as many as the stars, but he says, so will your offspring be. Your offspring uh, will also be too many to number. Genesis 13, 16 actually puts it pretty explicitly. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. So God's not making a precision statement of one to one here. He's saying there will be many. They will be uncountable. And then verse 6 comes. Um, this is, is one of the key verses, again, in, in the whole of the Bible. Um, this is the, the crux of understanding how God works, how he operates. 
understanding how he's, he's going to rescue um, humans who have sinned and rebelled against him. God promises through Abram, all the nations will be blessed. And how? How do, how do sinners who deserve hell receive the blessing of God? And he says, God saw his faith and counted it to him as righteousness. Abram believed God and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Three, three words there that, that we need to just unpack a little bit. Believed, counted, and righteous. So let's, let's start with the last one first, righteous. Righteous is the opposite of sinful. Righteous is, is innocent, is not guilty. Sinful means you have broken God's law. Righteous means you have not. You have kept God's law perfect. You have lived to the standard of, of God's holiness and his perfection. You have not wandered or varied from his perfect holiness. The unrighteous um, cannot stand in God's presence. The righteous can. And so this is our problem right here. This is significant. Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. If you think you're righteous, ask your spouse. They'll help you out. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. We deserve God's wrath. Now, consider the word counted. Depending on your translation, you might see considered or reckoned or credited. But notice the assumption here. Um, to be counted righteous, to be credited as righteous, assumes that you're not. It starts with that base point. The assumption here is that Abram was not in fact righteous. He was merely counted as righteous. Remember, he was an idol worshiper in Ur when God called him. That didn't cease to be true. That was still a reality in his past. That doesn't go away. Um, a murderer who's only murdered once. Um, I, haven't, I haven't killed anyone in months now. Well, you're still a murderer. You're still guilty of that. And even after God called him, he doubted God. He, remember, he ran down to Egypt and trusting in Egypt to rescue him in, in the face of the famine. And, and then he lied about his wife, which ended up putting her in Pharaoh's harem, harem to, to protect his own skin. Abram's a sinner. He is unrighteous, and yet the Lord counted him, considered him righteous. How? Why? Well, Abram believed God. And that was counted to him as righteousness. The word believed there, in a sense, is nothing fancy. It just means to believe, to trust in, to have faith in. Now, Abram's struggling a little, for sure. We see that in this passage. He's, he's asking the Lord these, these tough questions. But at bottom, Abram believed God. These are not questions of unbelief. This is wrestling with faith, right? There's a difference. This is very much like the man who brought his demon-possessed son uh, to Jesus and said, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. I trust you. God, help me understand how this is going to happen. I don't see it. The grammar here in verse 6 in the Hebrew actually gives us a little bit of insight. The word believed is in the perfect tense, which means the point is not that, that Abram... Um, heard this promise and believed this promise, not necessarily, not that he didn't believe it, but it's, it's that he had been believing, that he, that he had been believing for some time. The meaning of verse 6, that Abram had been believing God all the way along. 
And that's what God counted to him as, as righteousness. This is how God is going to fulfill his promise. This is a, a key piece of the puzzle. How can he give his peace and his provision and his presence to unrighteous people, to people who rightly deserve his wrath? Well, he can do that if he counts their faith as righteousness. They are not righteous, but by faith they are counted as righteous. And this answers a crucial question from our perspective. As a sinner before the Lord, and we're looking at God's holiness and God's law, I don't match up. I didn't match up this morning. How, how do I reconcile? How can I be made right with God? How can I receive God's blessing when I deserve His wrath? I'm guilty before Him. The answer is faith. The answer is trusting in His promise. He can count me righteous even though I don't deserve it. Our tendency is to try to make ourselves righteous, to try to, to merit God's favor. I want to earn it. I can do better. I can make it up to you, God. Maybe when I die, my good deeds will, will outdo my bad. And maybe when I stand before you, I'll, be, I'll, I'll make it by on the things that I've done. That's slavery. And I've lived under that. That is torturous. You'll never make it. You'll never do it. It's folly. It doesn't work. We're sinners. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind kick us, take us away. Even our good deeds, even our best moments are tainted and twisted with corruption, with sin. We're like this kid covered head to toe in slimy mud who's just walked in onto grandma's white carpet. And we turn around and we try, to, we try to make it go away. And the more we try, the more we spread the mud everywhere. It's a disaster. You can't do it. A sinner cannot make himself clean. Someone who is guilty cannot make himself innocent. But God can God can. God called Abram when he was far off in Ur, worshiping idols. God didn't say to Abram, uh, be better, clean yourself up, make yourself righteous. He said, trust me, and I will make you righteous. I will count your faith as righteousness. This is so crucial. We deserve death and hell. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves right before God. Nothing we can do to fix this gap that exists that cuts us off from his presence. And God says, trust my promise. Trust my promise. I will do it for you. Secondly, then, God says, trust my providence. Trust my providence. Look at verses uh, 7 to 16 there. Um, this takes a, an unexpected turn as God is encouraging Abram. Verse 7 he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from the land of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said to him, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each over against the other, but he did not cut the bird in half, the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, 
He drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God had affirmed the promise of the offspring, trust me. Now the Lord is affirming the promise of the land. But Abram is, is still wrestling. He doesn't understand, God, how, how can this be? How can I know that I will possess it? I know you've said it. I'm trying to trust you. How can I know it's true? And Abram is saying, uh, I trust you, but I'm struggling to see it. The Lord again answers. Uh, he directs him um, to collect this range of animals, a, a cow, a goat, a ram, some birds. Abram dutifully does so, collects them. Um, we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. Right now, I want to jump down to verse 12. The sun is going down, and the Lord puts Abram into a deep sleep. And he said to Abram, know for certain. Okay, here we go. This is the confidence I was looking for. You can be assured. And then he tells Abram, not what we expect. We expect him to say, everything will be okay. Know for certain it's going to be great. I'm going to be your shield, your reward. It's going to be a walk in the park from here. I've got you. It's going to be easy. But that's not what the Lord says. He says, know for certain your offspring are going to be sojourners, wanderers in a land that's not their own. Not only that, they're going to be slaves in that land. They're going to be afflicted, abused. They're going to suffer there for 400 years. God says, trust me, it's about to get bumpy. Trust me, this is, this is going to be a little bit rough. And after those 400 years, the Lord, would bring, the Lord would bring judgment on that nation. The Lord would bring them out of that nation with great riches. But it's going to be a tough journey. As for Abram, he's going to uh, live a long life, die in peace in his old age. Um, but after 400 years, the Lord will bring his offspring back into the promised land. God would fulfill his promise. Now, not the way Abram had expected not the way he would have chosen, not according to Abram's timeline, but he will do it. He will do it. The Lord says, trust in my providence. I have a plan. I'm working something out here. I'm seeing a bigger picture than you, Abram. There's more going on than what you might expect, and I'm over it. God's plan uh, is from start to finish, right? Notice uh, verse 7, he began this reminder, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees. Remember, I started this whole thing. I came to you. I was the one who called you in the first place. And then he says, I'm the one who will bring you through the promised land. I called you. I started this. I'll finish it. There's a trend in Christianity right now. Um, called open theism, or, or sometimes called process theology. Um, frankly, it, it begins with the assumption of the supremacy of man. It starts with the ultimate presumption that we as humans 
must be in control of our own destiny. We must be the ones to determine our own path, our own future. We must have ultimate freedom. And and if that is to be true, they reason, then God must not only not know the future, but have no control over it. He might know all of the possible futures. He, He might have good contingency plans in place for what may happen, but certainly not directing it. This passage, along with countless others, um, give clear evidence to the contrary. God is explicitly laying out for Abram, this is what the next 400 years will hold. And he's laying that out based on weather patterns that are going to come, based on not only God's actions and decisions, but the the decisions and actions of countless people, um, decisions of Jacob. Decisions of Joseph and his brothers, the decisions of Potiphar and Pharaoh and Potiphar's wife, and, 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 and that's just getting them to Egypt, never mind bringing them out. God is saying, I have a plan. I am over it. He would later say uh, it this way through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 46, 9, remember the former things of old, for I am the Lord and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. And then he describes in what way there's none like him. What does it mean for him to be God? Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. God has a plan. He has a purpose in all of it and it will stand. And the things that he has declared from the beginning, they will happen in the end. No variation. He's over it. Ephesians 1.11 says, uh, In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. How? How have we obtained this inheritance? What confidence do we have of this inheritance? Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It's set. It's planned. We have received an inheritance in Christ, and and we have received it uh, by God's predestined work, uh, the one who works out all things by his will. He's over it. Now, coming back to God's reassuring of Abram, that doesn't mean your life will now be a bed of roses. That doesn't mean, hey, it's going to be all great and, and candy and swell from here on out. You're not going to be happy and healthy and wealthy because God is over it. The Lord often takes his people through the valley of the shadow of death, through times of suffering and darkness and pain. Just like God brought the children of Abram through slavery in Egypt, he he often brings his children through the, the darkest of trials. But notice, his people would come out of Egypt with great riches. They would be blessed in the end as God worked through that. And and we preached through Exodus not that long ago. God did amazing things through that beautiful plan. Also notice that in the end, he would with absolute certainty bring his people into the promised land. He would do it for sure. Not, Not the route that was expected, but the final destination was not for one second in question. He says to Abram, I called you out of Ur and I will bring your offspring into this land. The Lord has called you. If you put your faith in him, there will most certainly be difficult days ahead. There will be trials. There will be seasons of darkness. Um, Maybe you're there right now. God, where are you? I'm 
suffering here, the Lord says, I'm over it. I'm working out my plan. Trust in my providence. Wait for me. The words of Paul, 1 Timothy, uh, or sorry, 1 Thessalonians 5, 24, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Don't be surprised. Don't be disheartened. He will bring you through. God says to Abram, trust my promise and trust in my providence. And then finally, the Lord says, trust my provision. Now, uh, we return to these animals um, that Abram had very strangely collected and cut in half. Um, Look at verse, uh, verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, and from the river Egypt to the great river of Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, these animals cut in half, this is just so strange for us. What on earth is going on? What is he doing? But, but Abram uh, seems to have known exactly what was going on. The Lord said, gather these animals, and he gathered them, and he cut them in two, and he arranged them, um, one part on either side, opposing each other. This is a, a Mesopotamian version of a contract. This is how they would make a, a serious agreement, a covenant God is saying, uh, I will double down on my promise. I will, I will confirm it to you. I will seal it with a covenant. And, and, and in this, he clarifies to Abram that he will give him the land of Canaan, stretching from the, the river of Egypt uh, to the great Euphrates River. Um, the river of Egypt is, is not the Nile, as, as you would easily assume, but, but it's called the, the Brook of Egypt, um, often called the Wadi el-Arish. Um, it actually runs just a little bit south of Israel's current border today. Um, and the Euphrates, way up north in Mesopotamia. Now, under David's kingdom, um, they would occupy this area. The Lord would give it to them then. But do you see how this promise of the land is so much bigger? And it fits into the overarching promise of what God is doing. Their own nation. Their enemies would be defeated. God is showing he will give his people peace. The land uh, flowing with milk and honey, he's saying he will give his people his provision, his blessing. The land with his temple there at the center of it, God is saying, I will give my people my presence. I will be with them. The promise of the, the provision of the land points to God's ultimate promise of his ultimate restoration. So go back to this covenant. This is of massive significance. There's so much going on right here. Remember um, that that God is in the process of working out his promise from all the way back at, at the first sin. God will send a rescuer. He will undo the curse of sin. He will will restore humanity to his peace and his provision and his presence. He's going to restore the world back to something better than the Garden of Eden. And and it's inside that greater promise um, and and working that promise out that God makes these promises to Abram, that, that, that he will give him an offspring, that he will give him this land, that he will bless him and bless the world through him. 
And so you can see how these, these promises to Abram are part of this bigger trajectory. The blessing through you, Abram, will go to the whole world, um, but it's not clear how yet. The first huge answer was verse 6, right? This idea that, that the Lord would count his faith as righteousness. And we say, okay, faith, that's the, that's the key that turns the lock. That's, that's a significant piece. God says, trust me, and, and through that trust, I will, I will count you as righteous. I will restore you to myself. But the bigger question is how? How can that be? Remember, God is just. That's our problem. He is like a perfect holy, righteous judge. And that means he will judge sin. God will not be unjust. It would be wicked for him to just let people off the hook. If we saw a judge who stood up and said, here is this murderous pedophile and he is clearly guilty and all the evidence points that way, but I'm a good judge. I will declare him not guilty. We would stand up and say, no, you're a wicked judge. A good judge would declare him guilty and give him the proper penalty. It must be so. Isaiah 5.20, God himself says, Woe to those who call evil good. Isn't that what God is doing? Woe to those who call evil good, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You can't do it. It's not okay. Ezekiel 18, verse 4, the Lord says, Behold, all souls are mine. The souls of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Every person will be held accountable for their sin. It's pretty straightforward. How is it then that God can simply count Abram as righteous? This is an impossible scenario. How can we assume that, that we can be made right with God simply by having faith. There has to be something else going on. And, and verses 17 to 21 here show us God's provision. This covenant is God telling us exactly how he would provide. As a practice of the day, you made this covenant, this significant agreement. You would, you would cut an animal or a few animals in half. Now, um, Josh and I were out at Connor's place a few weeks ago getting ready for the pig roast. If you haven't registered yet, get on that. Um, we had to slaughter a pig, clean out its guts. It was messy. It was smelly. There were children crying. It's jarring. It's death in your face. It'll be delicious, don't worry. Um, but... But you've got to stare at this once living animal and it's blood on your hands. It's not pretty. We didn't even cut it in half. These animals would be killed, would be cut in half, would be placed on either side of a path, presumably the blood running down into the middle. And then the two parties of the covenant would walk together down the path their feet in the blood of these animals, their hands probably still smelling and, and, and stained. And it was saying, if I break my promise, may I be like one of these. This is what will be done to me if I don't uphold my end of this covenant. This is a, a sophisticated and gruesome way of saying, cross my heart, hope to die, right? Now the fire pot, 
the smoke, the torch. These are, these are symbols of the Lord's presence. And this is what is absolutely shocking, is that the Lord and the Lord himself walks between the animals. God alone walks between the animals. He does what no human would ever been willing to do. The creator God of the universe guarantees the keeping of this oath, the keeping of both sides with his own life. God says, if I break the covenant, I will pay with my own life. And if you break the covenant, I will pay with my own life. Scholars have suggested this absolutely cannot be what is being said here. This cannot be what is meant by this. And in one sense, you can't blame them. This is an absurd statement. Almost everywhere else the Lord makes a promise. He so frequently says, as I live, declares the Lord. Because he is the eternal God. Because he is self-existent. He has life in himself. He cannot die. It just doesn't even make sense. It doesn't make sense until a few thousand years later, God himself would come down. Embed himself into the womb of a virgin, a virgin in the line of Abram through the line of David, the eternal God would take on human flesh. Finally, the promised rescuer, the one promised from from the very beginning, he's here, miraculously the offspring of a woman without the help of a man. And that child was not just a human child, it was the eternal God leaving his throne and stepping down into humanity, fully God and fully man, fully God that he himself would keep his promise and fully man to make the impossible possible, that the eternal God could experience death. And Jesus, who did live, by the way, a perfectly righteous life, who was actually righteous, only ever doing exactly as his father, as pleased his father, wrongfully accused, mocked, whipped, beaten. And just as God himself walked between the torn pieces of these animals, God himself was nailed to a cross and died. How can a righteous judge treat an unrighteous people as if they were righteous? Isaiah 53 answered it long before Jesus came. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He took the penalty of the broken covenant. We broke it. Right from the beginning, we rebelled against him. We deserved death, and he took our punishment. So all those who, like Abram, would put their faith in God, would trust in him, can be counted as righteous, not because they are righteous, but because they aren't, but because the penalty of the broken covenant, the curse of sin, had been poured out on God himself, had been fully and completely paid. He didn't just sweep it under the rug. God doesn't just say, it's okay. He pays it fully and completely through the death of Jesus on the cross. And God can And God will restore humanity to his peace and his provision and his presence. 
the offspring had come. The serpent had bruised his heel. The serpent had wounded him on the cross, but ultimately he defeated the serpent. He crushed his head. And just as he called Abram out of Ur, he continues to call sinners out of their sin. And just as he would bring uh, the line of Abram safely into the promised land, uh, he will bring the people of faith into his ultimate promised land and eternity of, of peace and joy and fullness with him. Eternal life with him. And, and so to this day, the Lord calls sinners. He says to you and to me here today, trust in my promise. Trust in my providence. I'm working these things out and trust in my provision, my provision of a sacrifice in your place. Are you trusting him? Maybe like Abram, you're wrestling with some things. God, I believe you, but I don't see how this is working out. Trust him. He's faithful. He will do as he promised. Maybe you've been living in rebellion against him. You've had nothing to do with God. You're going your own way. You're doing what, what seems right to you as best as you can, but not what's right to the Lord. Walking in sin. Trust Him. Believe in Him. Trust in His promise to count faith as righteousness. Trust in His providence to, to bring you through. Trust in His provision of His Son who, who died in your place. So that as a wicked sinner, you could be made righteous before God. You could be brought into God's great promise. Be restored um, in the end with him. We're going to close this morning celebrating communion together. Will you come prepare to lead us? The words of Jesus that we quote every time. This is my body broken for you. Sound familiar? Jesus is saying, this is my body torn apart the way you deserved. This is my body broken for you. A new covenant, not in animal blood, not in a symbolic pointing blood, but in the blood of Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of his promise, the provision for our rebellion. We're going to sing together as the elements are handed out. This is for those who are trusting in Christ. Those who are walking with him. Now, again, let's go back to Abram. Not, I am perfect and righteous, therefore I take communion, but I am not righteous, but I am trusting in him. I'm walking in repentance and faith and hope. If that's not you this morning, if you're not sure where you stand, we just invite you to sit back. Just, just observe this morning. Um, this is for those who are trusting in Christ. Um, that we would celebrate together. This is a statement of faith. This is a, a, a reaffirmation of the covenant made and broken and fulfilled by our God. So um, we're going to sing as they're handed out. You'll find two cups, the, the juice on the top, the bread on the bottom. Hang on to them. Um, we'll partake together in a moment. Um, would you stand? Um, let's sing together.